The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Well, it has been a hell of a news day. Donald Trump took the stand today during his civil fraud trial in New York and basically turned the entire courtroom into a circus. Former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, is standing by to break it all down. Former Trump attorney and the star witness in this case, Michael Cohen, is also here with his take. Plus, we are now 364 days, to be exact, away from the presidential election. And brand new polling has everyone kind of freaking out. Steve Kornacki is at the big board later in the show to tell us what's actually happening. And Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro is also going to join me later on. We have a packed show. But we do want to start tonight with what was a truly surreal and wild and crazy scene in lower Manhattan today. Now, apart from the fact that this was a former president on trial, that's a big deal on itself, today began like any other court case would. The defendant took the stand, raised his hand, and swore an oath to tell nothing but the truth. It was all pretty standard in the beginning part. Until the defendant opened his mouth. And that's when things got a little crazy. Because suddenly, the guy on the stand acted like he was at a campaign rally, not in a courtroom where he was the defendant. Trump took shots at the case, saying this is a very unfair trial and a disgrace. He took shots directly at the judge, Judge Ngoron, and saying, the fraud is on the court, not me. He took shots even at Attorney General Letitia James, calling her a political hack. At one point, Judge Ngoron reminded Trump, this is not a political rally, this is a courtroom. At another point, the judge told Trump's lawyers, I beseech you to control him if you can. I love that word, beseech. But of course, there's no controlling him even when that lovely word besieged is used. And when Trump actually did answer questions, he made several big concessions, it turns out. For instance, Trump conceded that exaggerating the square footage of Trump Tower by three times could have been a mistake. No kidding. He also failed to explain how he could credibly value Mar-a-Lago at more than 75 times more than its tax basis. That's a big over-examination there, overestimation. And despite downplaying the importance of the financial statements to lenders, he admitted today that he did indeed play a role in securing favorable loans, a concession our friend of the show, Andrew Weissman, calls key. Yes, very key. Remember, the judge already found that Trump blatantly defrauded banks and insurers. That was already determined. This trial, and what we're watching now, is about how much the Trumps will have to pay in damages. It's about money, and it's about their businesses, things that the former president whose entire identity is wrapped up in his brand, very much cares about and probably should have taken the chance today to try and stop the bleeding over. But instead, theatrics, of course, trumped logic. That happens over and over. And this chaos was not even an accident. It was on purpose, all of what we saw today in the courtroom. We knew this is what they were going to do. They told us this is what they were going to do. As Rolling Stone reported yesterday, Trump and his lawyers settled on a strategy to, quote, built on spite and unbridled antagonism. That strategy included deliberately trying to provoke the judge, which, again, is what we saw today. That was their strategy. 
According to that same report, some attorneys and political advisors to Trump told the former president that a so-called remand order to put him in custody for repeatedly breaching the judge's rulings might be a good thing, both legally and politically. That was part of their strategy, too. See, Trump is betting his typical attack dog aggression we've seen for years will continue to help him politically. And he leaned into that today, even as it clearly backfired in court. He can kick and he can scream all that he wants. We may see more of it. But a decision is coming in this case. And there are several more trials on the way. He could be in court all of next year. Amid so much bluster, here are the facts. His money is at stake. And pretty soon, his liberty will be too. And no amount of gaslighting or political gamesmanship like we saw today is going to change any of that. Joining me now is Preet Bharara. He's the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. I've been thinking all day today, what were you thinking about this trial? So let me start, Preet. <laughs> I mean, this, this was clearly, it was like a campaign rally watching it. Uh, but whether or not that works for him politically, which is arguable, what is the impact on actually the legal side, on the court? Yeah, that's not how you conduct yourself as a defendant in any trial, civil or criminal. It's not the way you conduct yourself when you're dealing with a judge who has pretty much been by the book in a case like this, which you know basically says to the world, uh, Trump and his team are no longer trying to win the case. As you pointed out in the intro, there's already been a substantial ruling on summary judgment that the, the former president is liable, that there has been fraud, and largely what this trial is about is determining what the penalty should be. So if you're trying to win the case as a legal matter, you don't do all the things he did. If you're trying to make a no. political point, th th then you do the things you did. But basically, you can't attack the judge again and again and again and behave the way you behaved and think you're going to get a favorable ruling from the judge. They've given up on that. That much is clear. They've given up on, I mean, and clearly that's not going to work well with a judge. He did have some admissions, say. I mentioned some of them. But as you were watching, what was the yeah. starkest substantive admission or concession that the former president made? Well, you mentioned at least two of them. One um, is that he was involved in, in various uh, statements and in providing information about valuations. And the other, the financial statements were made for the purpose of inducing lenders to lend, right? So you have a basis for finding that he had you know, what lawyers call mens rea, the intent to engage in fabrication and an overstatement, and also what the purpose of those statements was. He said that multiple mm -hmm. times during the course of his testimony, which, again, to me, is, is a function of both hubris and their plan to persuade the court of public opinion. And within that court of public opinion, the subset of people who are his supporters, not the court of law itself. He, the, everything ended a little bit earlier than we expected today. I mean, we're all waiting for maybe 430 or something like that. It ended earlier because his lawyers decided not to cross-examine him. What did you make of that strategy? <clears throat> That's unusual. I mean, usually it's the case that when you have the hostile party uh, examining your, your, your witness, your client, the person who's the defendant in the case, you then want to sort of clean up some of the things that were said before. You ask a lot of questions that allow your client, in this case Donald Trump, um, to, to modify the things he said, to improve the things he said. So, it, you know, maybe it's, it's an act of bravado, because sometimes somebody will say, I have no questions because we think our client did as well as he possibly could. And it's, and it's signaling to a, a jury, if there's a jury, there's no jury in this matter, as we know, but signaling to the judge that we thought that our, our guy did great. I mean, look, there are multiple times during the course of the trial today 
during the course of Trump's testimony that the judge said, can you control your client? Mm-hmm. And can you do something about this? And the lawyers, you know, speaking to an audience of one, their client, the defendant in the case, said things like he's giving great answers. They referred to him as not only the, the former president, but also the future chief executive of the country. They were just coddling him. And I think they thought that for, for public purposes, the spectacle that was Donald Trump's testimony stood on its own and was fine enough. It seemed like these lawyers were they were participating in a political strategy, not a legal strategy. Right. I mean, they agreed to this, according to Rolling Stone and others, which seems were you surprised by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's mostly a political strategy. And Donald Trump calls the shots. You know, he probably dictates some of the things that they say. These are loyalists to him. The only sort of legal strategy that I can discern here that people have been speculating about is to the extent that Donald Trump is being outrageous and provocative and attacking of the judge. Was there some strategy to to goad the judge into doing something um, that might be reversible error Mm. or get so angry that he might do something extreme, which might help him on appeal? That's a theory that people have been debating on cable television all day and will probably for the rest of the week. I'm not sure that's true. That's probably an incidental potential benefit of Trump acting outrageously. He believes when he acts in his life that he's always at a political rally, whether it's on a a cable news station or in a court of law or an actual political rally. I think he can't help being himself. So it's not clear to me how much legal strategy is here as opposed to political strategy. And there's clearly a lot of judges, a lot of prosecutors who are watching today. And one of the things that still hangs in the balance out there, one of the many, is this question of his appeal over gag orders. He just attacked Judge, he attacked a judge, he attacked the attorney general of New York. How do you think that plays out or does it on his gag order appeal in the federal case? Well, you know, it's, it's very fascinating that um, people are talking about how much of a, of, of a wide berth or not Donald Trump has been getting. So we could talk about a gag order in this case. And there's a second case in which there's a gag order, a criminal case. They're very limited. I mean, you have here a gag order in the New York civil case that mostly applies to judicial staff, and now the lawyers mm-hmm. of, of the president of the United States, former president of the United States. But he's allowing the, the defendant in a case, a party in a case, to specifically attack the judge himself in the case again yeah. and again and again. So um, I think the other, the other judges and the four criminal cases, one of whom has already issued a limited gag order, are going to be looking very carefully at the way in which you control your courtroom and control Donald Trump. At, at one point, one of Donald Trump's lawyers said, you know, said today um, to the judge, you know, you, you don't control me. You can't tell me what to do. You control the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who actually practice in court, that's a subtle distinction that is not understandable. <laughs> no, that's true. I, you know, watching this, obviously criminal trials are entirely different, but what did today tell you or what should it tell all of us about how Trump is likely going to approach his upcoming criminal trials. Can he can he do the same kind of crazy behavior that he did today in criminal no. trials? I, I think I think it's a much different uh, animal in a civil in a civil case. Um, you can take the fifth and you can decide not to testify because it might incriminate you with respect to some other criminal investigation. But if you do that, the judge can draw an adverse inference against you. And the judge said today when when Trump wasn't asking, wasn't answering questions in a direct uh, fashion, he said, I'm going to make adverse inferences. In, in other words, um, assume that the facts are bad for you based on the fact that you're not answering questions. In a criminal case, um, it behooves someone who is actually guilty and who can't testify credibly 
and who would be cross-examined by the prosecution uh, in, in a case like that, not to testify. So I, I think Donald Trump does not have the ability to testify in a criminal case because I think he'll be chewed up on cross-examination um, and, will, and it will be more likely to be found guilty if he does in that circumstance. Before I let you go, I do have to ask you about this, what I found to be a completely crazy story in The Washington Post. I've read it three times and I can't stop thinking about it, which basically outlines and it was kind of overshadowed by everything today, to be honest. It basically outlines the plan that Trump and his allies have to use the federal government to punish critics and opponents if he wins a second term. They're drafting plans. They're talking about invoking the Insurrection Act. What reading that? What did you think? What concerns you the most about what you saw in that story? So it's, you know, bonkers. I'm not sure what words to apply to the things that are said in that article and, and, mm. and the way it's characterizing Donald Trump's plans. I seldom curse on Twitter. <laughs> I, I did a couple of hours ago in response to the article. Um, it's ironic that Donald Trump says things about his current political uh, legal predicament, including with mm. respect to the case we've been talking about, that it's a banana republic. It's not. The things that are being talked about if you believe the article to be true and the reporting to be accurate and correct, that Donald Trump is specifically wanting to weaponize his next attorney general, if he gets back into the presidency, mm -hmm. and all the people under him to specifically go after not only political enemies of his, of his, but people who he employed who have been disloyal to him without any evidence, without any basis at all. That's the banana republic. And so I think if people should you know, read the article, I read it twice, and I can't stop thinking about it. You read it three times. <laughs> People should read it at least once and understand that the consequences for the rule of law and for democracy and for justice in America and one standard of justice in America, if Trump becomes the president again, will be a thing of the past. Anyone out there watching, you can read it four times. You can beat Preet and I both or seven combined. Preet Bharara, thank you so much for joining me this evening and talking about all Thanks these legal me. issues we're trying to understand. Donald Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, blew the lid off of the Trump Organization's fraudulent business dealings back in 2019. He was the state's star witness in this trial, and he joins me next. Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction the living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Mr. Trump. For all of Donald Trump's talk today about witch hunts, it's worth remembering that this entire fraud investigation only started after Trump's own former lawyer spoke out. Here's New York attorney Letitia James all the way back in September of last year. Mr. Trump and his allies may say that these penalties are too harsh or that this is part of a witch hunt. I will remind everyone that this investigation only started after Michael Cohen, the former lawyer, his former lawyer testified before Congress and shed light on this misconduct. 
Joining me now is Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen. He's now the principal at Crisis X. He's also the author of the book Revenge and hosts the Mia Culpa and Political Beatdown podcast. So, Michael, I don't know where else to start other than asking you when you were watching today, as well as you know Trump, <laughs> what did you make of his behavior in the courtroom? There's a lot of crazy going on there today. But what did you think? It was no different. It was any manic Monday over at the Trump organization. And you know, most people at the Trump organization, if you had any dealings with Donald on a day to day basis, you had to do exactly what Chris Kyes, Alina Haba and um, Cliff Robert did, which is mm. whatever it is to stroke Donald's ego day, you know, in and out, in and out all day long, because that's what their real job is. Their job wasn't to lawyer, um, you know, and to ensure that whatever the best possible outcome that could be derived from him taking the stand would be achieved. No, their entire goal was to create theatrics. Why? Because Donald thinks that the theatrics is the way that he's going to win the election. It's the way that he sees with the more theatrics that's going on, the higher he's climbing in the polls. I've seen him do the same thing when he made the allegations that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, but rather Kenya. Um, birtherism. I remember he that. He wrote that all the way from page. He thought it was he thought it was the greatest gift on the planet. And he thinks that all of these cases are going to propel him back uh, to the White House. So, Michael, let me ask you, because there's been some debate about this, whether his lawyers just agreed to this political strategy or whether, whether there's some legal strategy here about uh, trying to get an appeal, trying to pro provoke the judge to do something that would help him in appeal. What do you think? More all politics? Was there legal strategy here? No, there is no legal strategy here. And he didn't ask the lawyers what their opinions are. He told <laughs> them what he was intending to do. And again, being the sycophantic followers that they are, they just acknowledged it. Look, the second that Donald walks out and he did it when I was there, he's he did it again today. He did it um, on his posting after Eric and Don testified. He declares victory. He's the only one. Well, of course, he and his lawyers are the only ones that see a victory based upon what? That he corroborated exactly what I had stated um, while I was on stand. He not only did he corroborate what I had said, he actually placed himself into the center of the scenario, acknowledging that he knew what he was doing and that he's the one that signed off on it. So how like Alina Haba comes down the stairs and she starts attacking me. Michael Cohen crumbled. I, I schooled him. Right. And he's a liar. Right. I well, mean, Michael, this is what Donald Trump tells them to do. Yeah. Look, I was going to ask you about this because you've been around for so many of these meetings. Obviously, as Letitia James said, this wouldn't have happened without you. But, you know, I think a lot of people are speculating out there. Does Donald Trump know his fraudulent business practices are illegal? He sort of acknowledged a lot of knowledge today. Or do you think he actually believes that he somehow operated his business in an acceptable or an above board way? What does he think? No, I think he knows exactly. <laughs> I think he knows exactly what he was doing and he doesn't think about consequences. So when you bring up the top, oh, was he thinking, uh, legal, not legal? Yeah, he knows what's right or wrong. He just doesn't care. 
That's the that's the big difference. I mean, and again, what Donald always does is he uses the same play. And that's why when I was um, testifying before the House Oversight Committee, it was so easy for me to predict that if Donald Trump lost the election, that there would never be a peaceful transfer of power. Well, mm-hmm. it's also easy for me to understand how they were going to attempt to attack me when I was on the stand. And in all fairness, I certainly didn't crumble. And in fact, everything that I had said had turned out now to be corroborated by the defendant himself. But well, what's interesting, I was going through a drawer today and I came across this document and, and no one's seen this document before. He does the same thing over and over and over. So in this one, well, he let's writes, see the document. Obama's you have it with you? rep is using. All right. <laughs> Can you give, see that? give us a little give us a little rundown of what okay. that document has to say. So what it says is Obama reps is using lightweight New York state attorney general Eric Schneiderman to target political enemies. Well, all you have to do is just remove Eric Schneiderman's name from it, put it into, um, you know, Letitia James or put it into Jack Smith or put it into anyone. It's the same language over and over. He thinks that it was beneficial to him then, which we all know it wasn't. He ended up paying what close to 20 some odd million dollars for the Trump University case. It didn't work there. And it's not going to work here. This theatrics that he and, you know, his lawyers are doing every single day. It doesn't benefit him. And instead of schooling me, they should have schooled him on the proper way to answer a question. Well, one, you don't make a fool out of yourself. And two, you don't get hit with a with a six, seven hundred million dollar bill at the end of the day in disgorgement. Michael, I should I should note that that document we just showed you, we haven't independently verified that, though. That is a document you have. It certainly does give you a lot to think about, about the patterns here. Do you think knowing everything you know about Trump's company and his cash on hand is liquidity. Can he even afford the 250 million without selling assets? Can he even do that? That's what she's asking for, A.G. James. No, no. Uh, yeah, he, he's he's going to have to sell. Uh, and remember, one of the things that they have already done is they've started the process of um, install, installing a receiver uh, in order to handle the potential disposition. Now, what's interesting is you may remember in Delaware, they tried to open up Trump Corporation number two. And then, of course, they were looking to try to transfer, sell, hypothecate all of the interest in the Trump Corporation assets. But Tish James foresaw what he was going to do. You see, Donald thinks everybody else is stupid without acknowledging that they're not smarter than anybody else, that he thinks he's more devious. It's just not so. What did Tish James do? She foresaw that he would do something like this. And they ended up you know, preventing them from doing any of the transfers or hypothecation. Michael Cohen, he oh, he does. I love that phrasing. I've used it, too. He treats everybody like they're <laughs> stupid. Uh, thank you so much. You always keep things up uh, a little spicy. So thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro joins me next. I wonder what he thinks of everything that happened in lower Manhattan today. I'll ask him about that. A lot of other things after a very quick break. Stay with us. It was the poll that had Democrats curled up in the fetal position, plotting their moves to Canada post-election. 
The new numbers from The New York Times show Donald Trump leading Joe Biden in five out of six key swing states. And I have to say, I'm kind of of two minds about this. On the one hand, it's one poll. And 364 days, I promise you, is an absolute lifetime in politics. Just take a look at some of the freakout-inducing headlines about President Obama from September, November, and even December of 2011, the year before he won re-election. I was there. I was working on that campaign. And believe me, I remember it well. The conventional wisdom was definitely not that Barack Obama would win 332 electoral votes and become the first president since Reagan to win a majority of the national popular vote more than once and the first Democrat to do it since FDR. So my first instinct about that New York Times poll, what I've been telling friends and family, is don't freak out. There's time. There are plenty of contrasts for Biden to draw with Trump. There's lots of material there. And Trump is going to spend a lot more time in courtrooms. That's not good and not a good thing for him. But on the other hand, the four times indicted Donald Trump is now openly musing about locking up political opponents and using military force against American citizens. And he is still leading in the polls. And when you think about it that way, it's pretty concerning, right? Joining me now is the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. Uh, governor, it's so great to see you. Uh, I want to start just with politics. So many things I want to ask you about. But Pennsylvania is one of the swing states where Correct. Donald Trump is leading. And I think we're all trying to figure out why. Yeah, look, I mean, I wouldn't pay a whole lot of attention to the polling at this point. Um, and that poll certainly isn't gospel. I've seen a lot of polls all over the place. I think we have to acknowledge that there's real worry out there here in Pennsylvania and across this country. Worry about the economy, worry about immigration, worry about crime. But I think it's also really critical to note that we're at the beginning of this campaign. We've got a year to go. This race is going to join mm -hmm. and you're going to see a clear contrast between the president of the United States, who here in Pennsylvania has delivered. He's delivered on roads and bridges, on high-speed internet, on two hydrogen hubs. They're going to help bring about a clean energy future here in the Commonwealth and across the country. He's protected our freedoms and he stabilized our democracy. On the other side of this very clear contrast in this race, you've got the former president that just so discord and disconnect in the public, someone who's just brought total chaos to the United States. And you're seeing it play out in a courtroom right now, a, a guy who's focused more on himself uh, and his own fraudulent ways and less on benefiting the American people. We're going to have a clear contrast in this race. And as you pointed out at the beginning, it's it's the poll about a year from now that matters most. We've mm -hmm. got a long way to go, a clear contrast in this race. And uh, in President Biden, we've got a guy who's delivered for Pennsylvania. And I'll be proud to be campaigning for him and supporting him here in the Commonwealth and across the country. So you referenced it, the former president in the courtroom. I, I know I'm not going to ask you about the specifics of the fraud case. You have plenty on your plate. But broadly speaking, you're a former state attorney general yourself. Why is it important for fraudulent behavior like this to be called out and to be prosecuted? You know, when I was attorney general, we always talked about putting the people before the powerful. You know, the powerful are always able to cut corners, make deals for themselves and screw over the little guy. And Donald Trump has spent a career doing that in business and then during his four years as president of the United States. I think what's playing out in these this courtroom and in other courtrooms across the country in the future um, 
shows a, a clear picture that the former president is for himself. He's not for anybody else. And the kind of chaos that we're seeing surround him is not something I think the American people want to invite back into the White House, invite back into their living rooms every day. I think we need to move forward in this country, not backwards. And I think Joe Biden and the work that he has done has made clear he puts the American people first. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of worry out there. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of need. There's a lot of heartbreak. And I think the, the president of the United States is doing his best to address those challenges. But the idea that we're going to go back to Donald Trump um, and somehow that that's going to be correction for this country is is absolutely not the direction I think this nation will head in once they see the clear contrast in this race as it gets put together. And one of those contrasts, Governor, is, is rule of law, which I know you have a great deal of respect and value for, given your history. There's new reporting from The Washington Post that basically says Trump and his allies have begun mapping out specific plans for using the federal government to punish critics and opponents should he win a second term. I've read the story so many times and I can't stop thinking about it. But what is your reaction to that yeah. suggestion and even to that piece? First off, Jan, I, I believe it. And second, it should scare the hell out of every American. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that this guy is going to be completely unmoored if he's given the keys to the White House again, a guy who's going to be driving down the road with no yellow line, no guardrails, nothing to hold him back or nothing to hold him in the center, that should scare the hell out of everyone. The, the idea that he's got an enemies list and that he wants to take it out on them, again, it's more of the same. He's focused on his own grievances, his own mm. interests, his own selfishness, not focused on helping the American people, not building a single road, not repairing a bridge. You know, you covered when 95 went down and we rebuilt that road in 12 yeah. days. We did that with the partnership of President Joe Biden, who cared deeply about the good people of Pennsylvania and the folks along the East Coast who traveled on that road. The former president doesn't care at all about them. He cares about himself. And we should all be deeply concerned about his efforts to undermine the rule of law when he was president. And God forbid if he gets the chance to do that again. Before I let you go, Governor, I know you're busy. I do want to ask you about the war between Israel and Hamas and, and the impact here at home. You've been so outspoken about anti-Semitism, and I know you've been dealing with this in your state. There, there's unquestionably a great deal of anger and outrage at the number of civilian casualties and the lack of humanitarian assistance that has not yet made mm -hmm. its way to Gaza. There's also been some statements made that include language that have deep roots in history. And, and recently, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib has, has referenced and defended the phrase from the river to the sea. Uh, what would you want the congresswoman to know, or really anyone who's using that phrase or retweeting it, about how any member of the Jewish community in this country or anywhere in the world hears that phrase? I guess what I'd say is this, this deeply troubling moment that we're living through in the Middle East right now uh, should not be used by anyone uh, as a justification for their anti-Semitism, nor should it be used as an excuse for hate or Islamophobia or anti-Arab sentiment. I think it's critically important that we speak and act with moral clarity right now. That goes for the Congresswoman and everyone else. Look, there is no moral equivalency between Hamas, a designated terrorist organization designated by the United States, and Israel, a pluralistic democracy. Hamas, in an unprovoked attack, killed over a thousand 
multinationals, including the vast majority uh, Israelis. They took over 200 people hostage, including Americans. Israel should not have to live next to that terrorist organization. And they have every right to defend themselves and rid that region of those terrorists. Now, we need to do everything we can uh, to save innocent lives. And I condemn the loss of all innocent lives. But we have to be very clear on our college campuses or even in the halls of Congress to not use this moment as any sort of justification for anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, or any other forms of hate. The Congresswoman should know better. Others should know better. They should study their history. They should understand what has led to this, and they should understand what is clearly wrong. Hamas, a terrorist organization, and what is right, Israel's right to defend itself. Governor Josh Shapiro, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Okay, I've been waiting so long to say this. Steve Kornacki is standing by at the big board. He's got numbers on incredibly high stakes races. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Tomorrow, and he joins me next. We'll be right back. Okay, here's something to actually be excited about. Voters are going to vote tomorrow, and there are some incredibly important races we're watching. There are governor's races in Kentucky and Mississippi and Ohio. Voters will decide whether to enshrine abortion rights into their state's constitution. That's a big deal. And in Virginia, control of the legislature is up for grabs. And the results there will have an enormous impact. It could on abortion rights moving forward as well. Joining me now for the first time ever on this show is the great Steve Kornacki, who is at the big board. Steve, so excited to see you. Why don't you tell us what you're watching for in these races tomorrow and what we should all be looking out for? Yeah, well, as, you, as you mentioned, Jen, and, and thank you for that, uh, that friendly introduction. Um, four states we're looking at tomorrow. Two governor's races, Kentucky, Mississippi. Each has the, the potential to be close. We'll be keeping an eye on those. But let's zoom in right now on the two other states and the role of the issue of abortion uh, and what we might learn from that. So that would be Ohio. That would be Virginia. There is a proposed constitutional amendment on the ballot in Ohio. It would enshrine the right to abortion in the state constitution. It would also give legislators the power uh, to restrict it after the point of fetal viability, about 24 weeks. And in Virginia, there are state legislative elections where essentially the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, controls one of two chambers, is trying to go for full control, and he's advancing what he thinks is a path forward for Republicans to win over moderate voters on abortion. Let's start on Ohio, where this is the most recent polling on that proposed constitutional amendment, and that at least according to the polling, 
there's healthy support for this. There was also something of a test vote in Ohio over the summer. Opponents of this initiative uh, put a question on the ballot this summer that would have raised the threshold for constitutional amendments to a 60 percent threshold to pass instead of a simple majority. That went down to defeat by double digits this summer. Maybe that's a harbinger of how this is going to go tomorrow. Certainly, if it does pass tomorrow in Ohio, it would be consistent with basically every referendum, every initiative we've seen on state ballots since Roe v. Wade was overturned. At the top of this screen, you see here, these were initiatives, referendums that were advanced by the pro-choice side, two of them in very blue states, one in a more of a swing state, Michigan. They all passed. They all passed by double digits. On the other end of the spectrum, the pro-life side advanced some ballot initiatives, as you see, in three red states, but they all went down to defeat. So that has been the pattern that we've seen in every state so far. And again, uh, what they're doing in Ohio has not been done in every state. It's, it's saying abortion should be legal, but it's setting a point, the point of, of, of fetal viability. There's the potential there to set uh, restrictions after that. And if that passes in Ohio tomorrow and passes big time, it would give there's a plan here from abortion rights supporters to do similar initiatives in red and swing states in 2024, Arizona, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, they would have legal abortion, but they'd have that point of viability language in there. In the blue states where this is shaping up to be on the ballot, Maryland, New York, that language doesn't exist. And then we get to Virginia. And as I said, Republicans control the lower house. Democrats control the upper house. The Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, wants control of both of them. And he says on abortion, the, the compromise ought to be 15 weeks. He says that's sort of the cutoff that he would favor. And if Republicans could get power, they would push for that 15 week limit on abortion. Uh, how does that poll? Basically, here's a recent poll out of the state of Virginia, basically right down the middle, 47 opposed, 46 support. Democrats have made a big issue of this in particular uh, in this election uh, tomorrow. They think it could lift them to victory. If they have a good day, it's only going to uh, uh, reinforce their desire to make abortion a front and center issue for 2024. If Youngkin's side does well tomorrow, he may be giving Republicans a path forward on this issue. Steve Kornack, I hope this is the first of many. I want to come play around with that whiteboard, of course, as many people do. But thank you so much for joining me this evening. And joining me now here at the table is Amy Walter, who's the publisher and editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report, and Stephanie Shriak, who's a political strategist and former president of Emily's List. And we have a super women-powered political panel, which I'm so excited about. <laughs> Amy, I want to start with you. I mean, Steve just gave us a good rundown of how abortion rights is basically on the ballot tomorrow. Everyone's always looking for tea leaves. This is what everybody will always <laughs> ask me. What does this mean? What could this mean, the outcome tomorrow? Well, I do think Steve set it up very well because it's really about messaging more than it is about results, I think, especially if you're Republicans, who, when I talked to them right after 2022, they said, yeah, we absolutely were on our heels on this issue. It surprised everybody, but mm. especially surprising many Republicans who had to go to get through primaries. Many of their candidates moved very much to the right. Um, on this issue. Now they say, well, we've learned our lesson. We've got to go on offense and not let Democrats define this issue for us. This is what Glenn is, Youngkin is doing, saying, look how it polls. It polls much better than saying six weeks or ban it completely and we have exceptions. What's interesting, if you watch, and those of us who are here in the D.C. media market, we're seeing a lot of these ads. Many ads. Many <laughs> ads, uh, which is quite remarkable for legislative races, mm, the really amount is. of money that's being spent. But what you'll notice is there's only one race down in Richmond where 
a Republican is basically taking the advice of Glenn Youngkin and going on all, Glenn Youngkin going on offense. All the other Republicans, they're just sticking to crime. Crime. That's all the ads. <laughs> they're all they on crime. To, so, so this no. is really as much about Youngkin and his theory. A lot of the legislative candidates not taking that same advice. So there's been this New York Times poll that people are freaking out over. I can, I think it's safe to say. But one of the bright spots for Democrats and the Biden team is on abortion rights and the support for Biden's position on that. What, what you know, turnout is going to be a big issue, I think, as we watch, of course, in 2024. What are you watching for, Stephanie, in terms of how people are responding on the abortion issue tomorrow? Well, I'm just going to say, since the Dobbs decision, abortion is on the ballot every election and will be on the ballot as a decisive uh, issue until we figure out what to do, Mm -hmm. which means at some point in time, the American people are going to have to rise up and say, we need a better national law that protects abortion access. So tomorrow it's going to drive it. Youngkin knows it's a big deal. That's why he's trying to change change the topic and try to find a middle ground. But Amy's right. The Republican Party and the Republican legislators, they are ready to pass full bans. Yeah. And that's why it's not like Democrats are running that message. That is actually what the Republican legislatures are doing. So we have examples over and over again. And that is the problem here. So I'll see. We'll see what the turnout looks like. I am intrigued to see what the turnout is in these races. Uh, But this issue is not going away. I'm especially intrigued turnout uh, because a couple of these uh, Senate races are taking place down in um, the Hampton Roads area mm. where you have significant uh, black, black turnout, critical for Democrats. Yeah. Youngkin did well in some of these areas in 2021 when turnout was lower. Biden did much better in a presidential year. So that's going to give us maybe be. some tea leaves, too, about motivating what this means. So let me ask you, Amy, just about this New York Times-Siena poll, because what really jumped out to me was, well, a couple of alarming things, although we have 364 days, but there's a huge shift among young voters and also base voters. Um, And young voters specifically, in 2020, Biden won 59 percent of voters under 30, right? And now there's only a one-point gap there. Again, we've got lots of time here, but should people be freaking out about that? Should they not be? What was most alarming to you or not in the poll? This is what the poll said to me is is basically what we're going to be talking about for the next 364 days, which we all kind of know right now, which is President Biden has an enthusiasm problem with his base. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump has a ceiling problem. And if you look at all the head to head numbers in those states, I I go on my soapbox. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Don't talk about the margin. Talk about the vote share. What share of the vote is Biden getting? What is Trump getting? Trump's share of the vote is exactly the same as what he got in 2020 in every one of those states. So he capped out if uh, and Biden is dropping. So what this says to me is uh, for Donald Trump to win, he needs to he's He's doing one thing right, which is he's keeping his coalition together. Mm-hmm. But he probably needs something else happening, which is for Biden to drop either because people stay home or because third party candidates help to siphon some of that off. Very quickly before we go, where we have the GOP debate, the Republican debate coming up on Wednesday. My bet is that if Youngkin does well here, the person we see echo that language is Nikki Haley. Who's the candidate you think might? 
Uh, it is, yeah. you know, maybe it might be a little a step too far because let's face it, this is a Republican primary debate and they have to win a primary to be in the general election. And so you cannot go very far to the middle, if you want to call that the middle, in a Republican primary. So I, if, We'll if I were any of those nom- or any of those candidates for a Republican presidential uh, you, race, you wouldn't do it. I wouldn't Stephanie do it. Shriuk, Amy Walter, thank you thank so you. much. Let's do this again many times over the next 364 days. Up next, I just sat down with Stacey Abrams, and something she said really stuck with me. I'll show that to you uh, right when we come back. On the eve of another election day, it's important to remember what we expect from our elected officials, the basic standard that they should all be held to. I was reminded of that when I sat down with Stacey Abrams last week when she spoke about her former rival down in Georgia. Brian Kemp did not commit a crime, uh, which is what Donald Trump called on him to do. And, And I applaud his refusal to commit a crime. I applaud his refusal to overturn an election that was rightfully conducted. But that does not create a hero. Doing your job is the expectation we we should have. And one of the challenges of the last eight years has been a lowering of our threshold for what we expect of public officials. It is insufficient that you are lauded for simply doing the job you were hired to do. And then you get to erase the bad you continue to do. Not committing crimes does not make you a hero. Our bar for elected officials has to be higher than the absolute bare minimum. We can expect more, and we have to expect more. That does it for me tonight. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.